Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Thanks for joining us for another episode of In the Landscape. We hope you enjoy our topic today and uh, we're delighted that you're here, that Mm -hmm. you're listening and that we're getting feedback from our listeners all around the world. We're thinking of everybody. Hope you are all safe and comfortable and so are your loved ones wherever you are facing challenging times. And it's been nice for us to have the routine of the podcast to record and share. And we hope having it to listen to and download each week has been a bit of a, a nice routine for you as well. We're at a bright spot, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. So I am one of your hosts. I'm Kate Sadler, and with me is my co-host, Charles. Good to be here today. It's a little weird. It's almost like my episode downloads help remind me what day of the week it is. <laughs> Wednesday, our episode comes out, and Thursdays is a big one for several of the podcasts I follow. And it gives a little bit of order to a very strange time. Well, the old days, like there'd be your favorite TV show, it'd be a certain that's right, s- somewhat days gone by, yeah, or it'd be a, yep. Thursday night at eight PM. <laughs> I know it's a big deal. Must watch television at this time at this hour. And yes, that's already changed quite a bit. But now we don't even have you know the usual kind of markers for the week, and <laughs> I think we're still in March as we record this. But when you're listening to it, we'll be we'll be into April. So, mm-hmm. you know, spring in the Northern Hemisphere is definitely springing. We're seeing a change of seasons. And it's beautiful here where we are recording from our home in, in uh, Texas, west of Houston. A lot of breezy, sort of sunny days that aren't too hot yet, which is kind of a pleasure. <laughs> right. Lots of wildflowers, too. It's oh, really, yes. Texas, well, there's like Lady Bird Johnson. Former first lady was a big advocate of wildflowers and native landscapes, as I understand it. When you can see why coming from this region, I think it sort of begets that love. Yeah, there's some interesting gardens to see. There's Lady Bird Johnson organization, which I think is near Austin, which is where they lived. Then there's, I'm going to guess it's near Dallas. It's the George W. Bush Presidential Library, which has, is a design landscape by Michael Van Valkenburg's office who's in New York and Boston, and there's more or less a recreation of a Texas meadowy landscape. That's I haven't seen it in person, but it looks amazing with lots of grasses would be, of course, native meadowy, and then these tough-as-nails wildflowers. <laughs> well, and where were we recently? Like Houston Arboretum, I think, mm-hmm. has some beautiful wildflower meadows that they reclaimed, I guess. Oh, right. They had sort of cleared out some space and nature abhors a vacuum, so it moves right in with with the wildlife and that's meant to be there. So that was beautiful. And that was like research too. I think Lady Bird Johnson's wildlife was uh, research was involved. And then design workshop uh, was involved and then Reed Hildebrand. So there was a lot of, there were lots of non-natives, invasive plants. And just like you said, you take those out and try to put in plants that the local wildlife, birds and insects can take part in. Absolutely. And we haven't gotten out, we, we certainly get out in our neighborhood and practice some social distancing. We have a, a, like a waterway behind our home. So we're, mm-hmm. we're getting a front row seat for some of the wildflowers. But we traveled to some parks just the other day and decided not to get out of our cars. Uh, they seemed a little bit heavily impacted by 
foot traffic. So I don't know. We're just erring on the extreme side of caution here. And so I, I look forward to visiting these parks and gardens just as soon as it's safe to do so. And Mm -hmm. so in the meantime, it's, it, you know, it is nice to think about them and to, to visit them online as it were, and hopefully talk and listen about them as we discuss them here on the podcast. And, you know, we're, we're looking forward to those sunny days ahead when we can get back out there. And you know, in the meantime. Yeah, you know, some of the botanic gardens, there was one in Dallas. I don't know if it's the Arboretum or the Botanic Garden. They had a person, maybe it was the director or a person there was giving virtual tours. Oh, so wow. it was a video of this man who's walking through explaining what, you know, what's in bloom and that. There may be other. The Brooklyn Botanic Garden has the Spring Cherry Blossom Festival. It's a big deal. There's the National Park hosts the Tidal Basin in Washington, D.C., the cherry blossoms. So some of these may be available online. I mean, it's perfectly reasonable for someone to to safely uh, video those. And, and of course, nothing, I'm sure, compares to seeing all of this splendor in person. But the idea maybe behind that then is that you can get the firsthand knowledge at home on our computers in this <laughs> time of, of separation. And, and then we'll just be that much more knowledgeable when we get to set foot in person again. So mm-hmm. a little time to, I guess, embrace the, the educational aspect and then get out there when we have an opportunity to do so. Right, and plan future trips. Absolutely. You know, for, for the day when it's safe. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, um, today's topic is all about roses. I think of this almost as like, the grandmama of uh-uh. garden plants, the, you know. Like the diva. Absolutely. The Tough opera to star. grow, as they <laughs> say, but gorgeous, showy. <laughs> so, and you have, a, you have a whole bunch of tips and ideas to, to help us. And before we dive into that, we just want to say a quick thank you to those of you out there who are connecting with us on social media. That's a huge part of why we do this is to connect with our listeners and get mm-hmm. feedback and, and engagement there. And, and to some of our listeners who've actually signed up for some of our online courses, oh, speaking right. of virtual education, we're, we're doing excited. our best to make it fun and informative and sort of like our sleek <laughs> you know, landscape design style on our website. And so we invite you to check that out. Of course, we know there's lots of different priorities at this time as we're all trying to sort things out. So we do want to thank the people who have have given that a try and are finding right. it to be a good resource for their gardening and landscape aspirations. Right. It could be a home gardener that wants to learn more about a specific topic. It could be someone that is a student at any age, lifelong learning. It could be someone that's maybe make, anticipating a career change or looking into a career change. So that's how I made a career change when I was in my late 20s. Started taking classes and I was interested and, and I did make a career change that way. Very nice. Great. Okay. Roses. I, folks who are interested in them are beyond interested. It's like <laughs> a, a, a passion, I think, is right. the way people feel about it. I think, is it orchids are like that as well? Oh, right. People, yeah. there's like a level of, there's a high level of desire, which you yes. could say manifests itself in, in like a obsession. <laughs> yes. A bit of a, well, yes. <laughs> we, we'll call it a passion at this stage, but you know, it can sometimes edge on, on obsession just because these are such fascinating plants and, and again, somewhat fickle. So, right. You know, I have an idea, maybe just as like you're, you enjoy gardening, but you're not like a landscape professional. If you even just citing your perceptions about roses, that might be helpful. Cause I think there's a lot of misperception. Oh yeah. That might be a way to answer 
like that they're hard to grow is a perception, mm-hmm. which may or may not be true. It depends. There's a lot of, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way of putting it because we, of course, we discuss our episodes before we record them. And so one of the topics that did sort of come up is we, we're going to kind of get into the intro, the history of the rose and how it's used. And I was saying, I've been to a few rose gardens and, and areas of botanical gardens that have roses in them. And of course, you have to hit it at the right time of year or it's a bit of a dud. I mean, no disrespect to the rose lovers out there. This is me speaking from my experience <laughs> and perception, as you said. And so you're kind of like, oh, yeah, let's go to the rose garden because it's got to be a showstopper. And then you get there and it's just sort of like off season and you're like, oh, it's a lot of kind of dark green and maybe reddish foliage and not much else. But then you hit it at that peak and it's like phenomenal. So there's, mm-hmm. we we visited the New York Botanic Garden in the Bronx. Oh, right. And um, one, one special piece about that is the pioneering landscape architect, Beatrix Ferrand. She designed that. So she was, I guess it was, or was it early, earliest 20th century? She was one of the, one of the few, I think she may have been the first female member of the American Society of Landscape Architects like around 1900, a founding member. Very cool. So yeah, I mean, we love, we love her. We, we've been to some of her other gardens around the country. And yeah, it was just at peak. I mean, it was this bright, sunny day and, you know, everything was going full, <laughs> full stop. So all the stops. And the other garden that sort of resonates with me as a non-connoisseur is the, I want to give it the correct name. It is the City of Portland's Parks and Recreation is the is the entity that maintains it. And it's mm-hmm. the International Rose Test Garden in Washington Park. And if you've ever had an opportunity to, to visit, it's on this hillside surrounded by those large conifers that overlooks, I mean, out in the distance is Mount Hood, which is this like snowy peak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think like Mount Fuji, if it's you've a, never like seen a, it. Like it's called a monolith. Yeah, it's like, like a volcano right. in, in the Cascade Range. So it has that volcanic kind of cone. And there's no other mountains. I Not mean, super close. It's I mean, standing the, on its own. So it's really, it's iconic. Very. So, I mean, talk about stunning, but it's the density and the variety of roses there. And then and maybe the weather, it just ha- so happens is when we visit is in the summertime, but it, the weather seems conducive to having a, I mean, they call it the Rose City for a reason, like a proliferation mm-hmm. of roses. So it's got that, it's got the abundance that makes it really, really satisfying. But a rose bush in a garden, if it's just one or two, I've never been a huge Fan. Oh, I hope I'm not breaking anyone's heart. But it's, you know, we just have our You're entitled to your Japanese opinion. maples. I'm all about it. But the rose, I'm like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> so, so what about roses? Why are they so popular? And, and what do we do if we want to kind of cultivate them with that sense of effusion that makes them so special? I guess they capture people's emotions, desire, like they really play on your emotions so that people almost can't control like a baby is cute many people have a reaction oh is that a cute baby or a puppy or a kitten i think i'm not a scientist or a psychiatrist psychologist but i think there is that with roses so many people they're fragrant they're colorful the sort of the background of them they believe that that they originate in china and they're distributed around the world it's one of the most popular cut flowers is my understanding <laughs> it's i think it's plants where you you give them love or you give them your attention. And then roses respond pretty well to that. So it's where, let's say, some orchids 
it's possible for anyone to grow an orchid with certain guidelines. It's a little more difficult. So roses, I think it's pretty gratifying. You buy it, your aim is to have beautiful flowers, and it, there's a good chance that your aim will be satisfied. So it's, there's that positive cycle of people growing them, they're beautiful. The more you work at them, people tend to get into roses, then they have a collection. Uh, in public parks, it, it uh, facilitates walking and strolling, sitting on a bench, and the fragrance. That the fragrance, it, that, that's almost beyond description. Like that, when it hits you, and it's not all roses either, but some roses are fragrant. Well, and of course, I mean, that brings up a good point. One of the great benefits of roses is the degree to which they've been cultivated into different varieties. There seems to be something about them that lends itself to just this vast range. I don't know if it's the most wide-ranging variety among any of the plant types, but it, you know, big blooms, little blooms, single stem. I mean, can you talk, walk us through some of the different kinds that you might encounter? Oh, sure. Well, like there's, what the Portland, Oregon Rose Garden does so well is the, using the vertical space very efficiently. So if you have, let's say, shrub roses or tea roses, they're sort of somewhat squat. They're on the ground. So you need a lot of horizontal space. There are many types of roses, though. So there's a climbing rose. There are shrub roses. And sort of within that are tea roses. So when you buy a, a single stem rose, I believe that's a tea rose. So it's the flower is more or less upright and it's tight. David Austin is a rose hybridizer in England, lived a very long life, passed away pretty recently. His roses are very dense, but, but not upright. So it's more, they're much wider than they are tall. It's almost like a sunflower. It's like sort of his typical, there's different proprietary companies. So a drift rose is lower to the ground, but not quite a ground cover. There are reblooming roses that are very popular. And so those come in like a, like knockout is a proprietary, which is a wide range now of all different shapes and sizes. Then the drift are a little lower. Then there's like a true ground cover rose that would be maybe at six inches or so. So it does seem like a part of the technique maybe is if you, if you're so inclined to like group a few of the different types together, and then you have this layering effect of roses <laughs> rather than a bunch of like individual, I guess, tea rose maybe is the one that I think of as the most common with kind of the long stems and some, and a lot of foliage in between. And then these rare blooms sort of coming up. So you could really create almost a collage of the different levels and have quite a lot going on. I mean, if I was to play critic or my design opinion, the Portland Rose Garden does that so well. There's quite a grade chain. So there's, there's a Japanese garden, there's tennis courts, then you descend to the Rose Garden. So there's a slope, there's roses planted there. There's all different, I mean, from roses that are probably just a matter of inches tall to three feet tall, six feet tall, then having, imagine a, a structure that's a pole, so it could be wooden or metal, and then chains that would connect one pole to another, like you'd have like, like outdoor lighting. I think the Portland, Oregon has those too. So you have roses, which would grow up. Some of those vertical structures there, I'm going to guess, I mean, that maybe 10, 12 feet tall. So it's very significant. There's from the ground up to, I mean, like at least 10 feet, there's a lot to see. There's, like you said, layering. So that rose, like that tea rose, that's not that dense. 
there's maybe a shrub rose or a ground cover rose in front of it. And then there's a taller one behind it. And then there's a climbing one next to it. So it's the space is utilized as opposed to these sparse flowers. So one of the reasons I wanted to get the name right, and it sort of lends itself to a question, is because it does seem like a rather long name. So it's in Washington Park, but it's the International Rose Test Garden. What does that, what does test garden mean? And does this apply to other species of plant? Are they grouped in this way and tested? I don't know. Uh, good question. There are national rose garden test sites, which I'm very familiar with. And so this Portland happens to be an international. So how roses, as I understand it, there are individuals which cultivate roses and they're trying to create a new bloom, maybe like a yellow rose that has a certain special fragrance. And so they develop that, and they're going to name it. It's often named, I think it's almost exclusively named for a woman. So like, like, like rose names, like the tea roses in particular. It could be an opera singer or be a first lady. Yeah, that is actually one of the fun parts of going to a rose garden is to look at some of the names because they're wild. You know? Right. <laughs> so you're like, like Zsa Zsa Gabor, yeah. Lady Diana. I yes. mean, it goes on and on. Mm. You can just imagine whoever your Dolly Parton might have one. <laughs> So then that rose, that could be somebody in Belgium, let's say, or somebody in Arkansas. And they developed this rose. Now, for that to be sold around the world in the trade, as we call it, it's best to test it. It's like an unknown because it's a hybrid. How is that going to perform? Is that going to be able to grow in southern Maine? Is it going to be able to grow in Arizona in the shade? So these test gardens, there are national ones, and then there are international ones too. So we would take that yellow fragrant rose and it would be in like a trial period and we would distribute that. And there's many, there's many rose organizations, of course, too, that are national, international, even regional, local, and that rose would be distributed and they would keep data on it. So we'd say in Portland, Oregon, we had a particularly hot summer and this rose did moderate, did well, did poorly. And so that trial period would go on for a period of time. And then they would say, this rose, it's like a, like a way to become certified in a way. So it's, the, it's, it's gone through these trials. It excelled, or I might say, it's supposed to be hardy in Southern Maine, but it wasn't. So it's really only, it can grow up to Boston. So what then are the ideal growing conditions for roses? Well, the soil wants to be well-drained. So that means when it rains, the soil can hold moisture, but it doesn't stay soggy. That's a mixture. So the soil texture would have some organic matter, some clay, some sand, that it's freely draining. So if it's not freely draining, you can amend the soil. There are plants, let's say shade trees or some of the woody plants that we're particularly expert at cultivating that are much more durable. So the roses, the soil may need to be amended and drainage may need to go in to help the soil. Okay. Um, heat, cool, sun, shade, water. What do you think? So let's see, the roses like full sun. So that's generally considered six hours or more a day. And if they don't have that, they may not flower. And so what will happen with roses, like the shrub roses in particular, they get very dense. They can shade each other out, shade other roses, which we can talk about that at some point. So the pruning is very important to make sure that, that they're getting enough sun and that they don't get too dense. And what about winter conditions? Can you have them in very cold places? Many of the ornamental plants will go down to like zone five. Now, some of the roses, that would be too cold. So in the U.S., 
There's the temperate region, which would go to the southern U.S. So Texas, southern Texas is subtropics, Florida subtropics. So the range would be roughly zone five to zone nine, give or take. So zone five would be like Boston and southern New England or like the middle of New England, parts of upstate New York. So there's a wide range of conditions that they can grow in. I know there's a a national test garden in Syracuse for roses, and they have climbing roses. And so those in a cold cold condition could really suffer, and, and there could be winter dieback. And so they wrap them. Like it's in like bubble wraps or, or some kind of material. So roses might need protection, whether they're they're sited on the south side of the house or out of the wind, or there's all kinds of uh, winter interventions that can be taken: burlap, mulch, to help help them get through the winter. Do you need to have a structure to train them on in all cases, or just the climbing ones? Uh, just the climbing ones. I mean, there's a range. If there's a rose that you particularly liked. It would be possible to grow a non-climbing one. You know, it's, it's not going to grow probably as quickly. It might not be as easy. They are pretty versatile. Okay, so why don't you take us through some of the pruning suggestions you have? Well, let's see. More or less the first step, really with almost any type of pruning, is to assess if there's any dead branches, dead growth, any broken branches, any crossing branches. When I say crossing, it's like things that are crossing and like rubbing with each other. So. The first step is really to remove the, the dead growth. If you skip that step and you just started shaping it, then what could happen, which I've done this, I made this mistake. <laughs> you shape it, you think it's just about right, and then you take the dead out, it might be too thin. There might not be enough left to flower and to stay healthy. And so one of the main principles with, with a flowering plant is when you're reducing the height. And so with roses, it depends on the type of rose. If it's a shrub rose, you could reduce it by about a third, roughly, depending how big it is and what the goals are of where it is. So you're going to first take out the dead. Then you could also take out the more vigorous canes. So the canes that, as they get older, they get more woody and darker in color, like dark brown. And so as they get older, they're flowering at the very tip, but they're not generally bearing as many flowers as like a younger shoot. So those could be removed. When you're making a cut, you want to make a cut angled, leaving a, a dormant bud, which is going to grow outward. So that would be the same as a fruit tree. You want to encourage growth from the center outward. So if the bud is reaching inward, you'd want to remove that generally. And there are lots of great diagrams on how much to leave. And so it's you want to become prune at that angle. So it's it's growing the same angle as that dormant bud, and I'm going to guess it's about a, like about an eighth of an inch or so. So it's a little bit above the bud. It's not right at the bud, but it's not a big stump either. And do you just use normal pruning secateurs? Are those? Is, that, I don't know if I'm like, saying that right. Like but. those would be great. And you want to always sanitize because roses are quite prone to all kinds of disease. How do you deal with the disease factor? Some of the more recent introductions with roses. These reblooming types are pretty disease-free. So there, are, there would be choices that would be lower maintenance. If you had your heart set on a rose that did need to be treated, one of the better garden centers or landscape design or landscape architect could assist. That's sort of part of the design process of this is the rose that you fell in love with. 
And these are all the interventions that are going to need, need to be taken, all the types of fungicides, pesticides. It's pretty, I remember at, at the speaking with some of the, uh, the leadership at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, and they had explained the whole campus, except for the Rose Garden, was organic, where was like the least amount of pesticides interventions. And the Rose Garden, it was a hard decision, but to have people love visiting and seeing the roses, they require a lot of pesticides and fungicide, unfortunately. Do they put other plants in the garden at risk, or is it really whatever's targeting them is, is focused on the roses and that's it? It's mostly funguses and insects that are targeting the roses. Now, they might like aphids. There would be things that would affect other plants, but the roses, that they're, that those divas that have all these wonderful characteristics, but they're, some of them are, are susceptible to, to problems. So that's part of, the, of, of choosing the type of rose. Like for me, that's, I would weigh the pros and cons. And so do you have to prune the other varieties, the climbing roses and the, and the you know, carpet roses, or do they pretty much have a form on, of their own that's going to rebloom no matter what? You know, good question. I was reading up on, uh, there was a question we received about pruning climbing roses, and I cited the, the Royal Horticultural Society had the phrase, which I really like, that which I agree with, the pruning, climbing roses is more about training them and less about pruning, where you're, you're arranging the architecture of if it's on a trellis or if it's climbing up a pergola, you're more or less thinning and arranging, putting it in a place with ties or other materials. It's more about the arranging it and thinning out dense areas and encouraging sparser areas. Like carpet roses, it's similar to pruning some of the low-growing boxwood or other evergreen shrubs, where it's if you do a definitive cut, it's going to look unsightly. So it's you're more or less opening it up and then thinning some of the longer growth in such a way that, that it still looks naturalistic. What are your thoughts design-wise with regard to roses? Is it something you use in your landscape designs a lot? on your own or is it something clients ask for a lot and how do you you know do you always do like a concentrated rose garden or is it something that's used throughout the garden good question there are cases with our work with boxwood boxwood are often the the hedging element that are framing rose gardens so we do actually work in and around roses a lot i would say the average customer is disappointed with a rose garden that like when they come to us they're just not satisfied and so we often explain if the roses are existing, they may have been picked out for their color, for their beauty. Some of these higher maintenance roses, they really need to be pruned like every two weeks. So to really get them, now there's the reblooming type that are, that are quite low maintenance. So in our work, I guess that's part of my design process of having some plantings. I guess our work, we maintain many formal gardens in my own design. It's, I would say it's more informal. And so there'd be a grouping of roses, you know, be five or seven or 11 roses that would have some impact. And then there'd be other plants that would have other seasonal impact. That's like how I would use them myself. Maybe to play critic, the average home gardener, when I visit homes, I visit homes, you know, many homes all over North America. There's often not enough roses for impact. So if you, if you fall in love with a certain 
type of rows, I would say at a minimum have like three of them. And depending how big an area, and if one of them is not performing that well, then you still have two that are. What's often done is there's maybe there's three different ones that you love and they're all together and it can look a little awkward. So having the impact, you only need more volume to, to get that. Great. Any other pressing rose tips that you have for people who are really passionate or maybe would like to get into roses that we haven't covered? The structures that they grow on, that requires a little bit of planning. And so beautiful lattices, trellises, fences, arbor, gates. I mean, like the list goes on and on. Even you see this in European gardens, even like a, like a modest home, a cottage with simple either screws or nails and wire, you can create a very simple trellis, which can have an immediate impact and a rose can be trained to that. So in a way, it's, it's a very versatile plant that can bring a lot of joy. It can be a, it's a great cut flower. There's a culture of it. So to make sh- the horticultural element, to make sure that the, if the site conditions, not too wet, it's not too hot. Those would probably be, if you're in a warm climate, it probably does not want to be in full blasting sun. All right. So anything else for our episode today before we call it <laughs> done? Let's see, we like to cover a design principle to close with. And so we talked about contrast as one to go over today. And with roses, that would apply in that, that there needs to be a density of them for you to have a visual impact. That's important. And to think of what the background behind them is, which if that's an evergreen hedge, if it's ornamental grasses, maybe it's a it's a holly shrub or a yew hedge. And that mixing and matching colors can be beautiful if there's enough contrast. So like a, a pink rose and a light yellow, that might be a nice contrast. If it's too close, like if you had three shades of pink, it might be a little confusing. Like the viewer might say, are these supposed to be the same color? I can't quite tell. So to having, having a distinctive contrast. And then there are some colors like the opposites on the color wheel. If you had a, a purplish rose and a yellow rose, it's going to really you know, grab your attention. And that may be what you want, or, or it may not be. So to really think through for contrast, that, that there's enough that you can see. And then the time of day. So like a darker red rose is going to almost turn black in the evening. You're not going to be able to see it. Where the lighter, like the blush colored, the pinks, the white, some of the, the lighter yellow, could hold up in lower light. Or if you're seeing it in the middle of the day, if that's when you use the space, like a public park is probably going to be used during, during the middle of the day. Then you could have stronger, brighter, like a real, real dense yellow, a very bright red that, that can hold up to, to the midday sun. Great. All right. So that is pretty much a, a short primer on roses, just a starting place, I'd say, and a way to begin to think about cult, you know, cultivating roses in your own landscape. So feel free to shoot us questions if you have them. Stay tuned for some contact information toward the end of the episode. Look forward to thinking about our next topic for next week. So we hope you find you know little ways to get into the landscape in this challenging time, which is ongoing for a little while longer yet, I think. 
And we know that not all landscapes may be accessible at this time. So we hope you find small ways to kind of connect. Anything else to add? Mm -hmm, I agree. Get out there in the landscape. Enjoy the wonder in your own area. And uh, we wish everyone the best. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden, a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you. So drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details, And also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.